0: Hello, and welcome to Voicing Across Distance. This is Episode 10, Double Conscious Song, Perceptions of the Black Voice, Poetic Text. My name is Masi Asari. There are three parts to this podcast, a brief reading from a book on voice and sound, a conversation with a scholar on voices in our times, and an exercise for voice practice from an expert. This week, I begin by reading an excerpt from the book, The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Then I'll be in conversation with leading sociolinguist Anne Harper-Charity Hudley. And to close, voice professor Linda Gates shares a wonderful vocal exercise. I also want to give the credits now for a few clips of interstitial music and performance featured on this episode. First, a clip of the song Steal Away, sung by Kathleen Battle on her album So Many Stars, and then a clip of the poet Tayahimba Jess performing his poem, Ciciretta Jones. Theory. Voice theory. In my conversations with this episode's guests, we speak about several aspects of vocal doubleness or duality. Dr. Charity Hudley and I discuss the complicated ways that Black people's voices are mythologized as healing and powerfully entertaining, but also often read by linguistic gatekeepers as not quote-unquote polished enough to allow Black speakers access to professional opportunities. Professor Linda Gates and I talk about the voices movement through speaking as well as singing, the line between the two kinds of vocal practice, and the importance of understanding our voices as capacious enough to encompass both. We also touch on her love for poetic texts, in particular folk texts passed down through generations. And that point, as well as Dr. Charity Hudley's direct citing his work, has put me in mind of the very famous book The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois, where he writes about African-American spirituals, what he calls the Sorrow Songs. These songs and their poetic texts infuse his book, forming the epigraphs to each chapter and the subject of the book's final essay. Du Bois famously theorized the condition of double consciousness, the lived experience of being Black in America that involves seeing the world through what is simultaneously a kind of a veil and a second sight that means always perceiving oneself through the lens of white others, and I quote. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two ness. And the two ness of Du Boisian double consciousness is that of existing across and between Africanness and Americanness. It also constitutes a dynamic, and maybe we can even say resonant, gap between inner affective experience, the way one feels oneself to be, and outer visual aspect, the way one is seen to appear. And so in this way, Du Bois theorizes a basic performativity to racialized life. On another note, as a songwriter myself, and in particular a writer of songs for the musical theater, I also think quite a bit about how songs may do double things at the same time, what might be understood as the performativity or the dramaturgy of theater song. This week, I was working on a song, for example, where the character is not quite convinced of what she is singing, so while the words announce that she is quite sure of her decision, the music on which she sings those words communicates that she is actually not quite so sure. And both things are operating at the same time. Even removed from the context of a show and storyline, I remain attuned to the ways that my songs may be received differently by listeners of different backgrounds. When I write a lyric like, If you are one of the lucky ones, if you are one of the ones who can breathe, I am aware that this will hit differently for, say, a white listener grappling with the awareness that her own life is not threatened by the police, and a black listener remembering all of the narrow escapes that he has had at the hands of the police, the fact that his present existence truly feels like a matter of luck. The words may also land differently for someone who has a loved one taking their last few breaths in a hospital on a ventilator in the era of COVID-19, regardless of their race. I think this is part of what W.E.B. Du Bois's theory of double consciousness can help us understand, the extent to which some people, and in particular Black people, are always considering how they will be viewed or heard even as they move through the world, live life, utter voice. Who has to not just live, but pay attention to how others regard every aspect of their own lived experience? whose day-to-day performance strategies, linguistic strategies, vocal strategies necessarily involve not just vocalizing, but also positioning oneself to be less likely of being misheard. The closing paragraphs of Du Bois's book have stark resonance today, over a century after they were written. He writes of the spirituals as, in their paradoxical duality, both sorrowful and evidence of hope. And I invoke this reading alongside Dr. Charity Hudley's reminder that hope and compassion must also be moved into action that generates results, the material improvement of the conditions of Black life. This is another way that I hope that we, all of us hearing this podcast, can listen for the double resonances of Black song and voice. In this reading, the we and us refer to Black Americans. Du Bois was writing in 1903, at a time when the word in use was, of course, not black or African-American, but the now uncomfortable word negro. He writes, Actively, we have woven ourselves with the very warp and woof of this nation. We have fought their battles, shared their sorrow, mingled our blood with theirs, and generation after generation have pleaded with a headstrong, careless people to despise not justice, mercy, and truth, lest the nation be smitten with a curse. Our song, our toil, our cheer, and warning have been given to this nation in blood brotherhood. Are not these gifts worth the giving? Is not this work and striving? Would America have been America without her Negro people? Even so is the hope that sang in the songs of my father's well sung, If somewhere in this whirl and chaos of things there dwells eternal good, pitiful yet masterful, then anon in his good time America shall rend the veil, and the prisoned shall go free. Free, free as the sunshine trickling down the morning into these high windows of mine. Free as yonder fresh young voices welling up to me from the caverns of brick and mortar below. Swelling with song, instinct with life, tremulous treble and darkening bass. My children, my little children are singing to the sunshine, and thus they sing Steal away. Steal away. to welcome our guest scholar for this episode, Anne Harper Charity-Hudley. Anne Harper Charity-Hudley is the North Hall Endowed Chair in the Linguistics of African America and Director of Undergraduate Research for the Office of Undergraduate Education at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She was previously the Class of 1952 Associate Professor of Education, English, Linguistics, Africana Studies, and the inaugural William & Mary Professor of Community Studies at the College of William & Mary. She researches and teaches on the language, literacy, and culture of African Americans, Her publications address the relationship between language variation and pre-K-16 to educational practices and policies, and high-impact practices for underrepresented students in higher education. Dr. Hudley's books include Understanding English Language Variation in U.S. Schools, co-authored with Christine Mallinson. We Do Language, English Variation in the Secondary English Classroom, also co-authored with Mallinson and the Indispensable Guide to Undergraduate Research, co-authored with Cheryl Dichter and Hannah Friends. She serves on the Executive Committee of the Linguistics Society of America and the editorial boards of major journals in the field of linguistics. With degrees from Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania, her honors include multiple awards from the National Science Foundation, the NAACP, and the 2019 Linguistic Society of America's Linguistics, Language, and the Public Award. Welcome, Dr. Charity Hudley. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for
1: having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today.
0: Yay, I'm so excited. I have to admit that I feel a little bit out of my depth because I know so little about linguistics, but I'm also just really excited to, to learn with you and I, and I want to thank you for spending the time. Thank you. So uh, you are an expert on how people use language to co-construct identity and especially Black identity including the ways that African-American speakers negotiate how their or our blackness may be understood by different listeners. And I should probably say uh, how blackness may not be understood by different listeners as well. Um, Some of the words that you use to describe this work in linguistic terms, things like idiolects or language variation, may be less familiar to some of the listeners of my podcast, who come more from uh, performance, theater, and music backgrounds for the most part. Although, of course, we also work closely with um, and adjust our language and voices for particular aesthetic and sociopolitical ends. All this to say, can you please help us to understand why a sociolinguistic perspective is so important, especially in the times that we're living in right now?
1: Yes, I think it's really important to think about this intersection of language, culture, and society. Mm -hmm. Using the sociolinguistic lens in particular to help us think about how language is culture. Like, so how is our our language really a reflection of our cultural practices, ritual practices, performance practices, also our identities and the ways we construct community. And at the same time, really thinking about the cultural and social impact that our language use has, both Mm -hmm. for um, the person who's doing the communication the audience, um, and then culture as a whole. And I think that's so important right now as we kind of seek to be understood, particularly um, in the Black community and thinking about the ways that our language has really in many ways been a way to not just understand discrimination, Mm -hmm. um, but a way to measure it. Mm -hmm. And I think that has given our whole kind of sense of our language and our linguistic performances as African Americans, um, this way of kind of still being, even within the Black community, seen as something that we're not quite sure about. Like, we're not quite sure about how our Black identity, how Black culture relates to language, even though in Black culture, language, communication, performance, singing mm-hmm. is not just valued, I would argue, but it's purely valued for just all kinds of historical and contemporary reasons. And Mm -hmm. so this duality, or if you think about going all the way back to Du Bois and thinking about a dual consciousness, studying language gives us a way to see it, hear it, feel it, and experience it in real time.
2: Mm -hmm. We're making
1: those choices constantly about how we want to communicate to other people and how we want to be understood. And I think we have to have more explicit conversation about that. And so when I think about things like idiolects, right, I'm thinking about how people own voice, their voice patterns, their voice practices
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: are choices and negotiations between that individual speaker and those people that they are speaking to. And we want to think about how we think about variation. So large scale variation, thinking about the ways that Black people talk, within those specific aspects of the variation within the voice, the voice patterns, mm-hmm. um, and then also so within the voice pattern, but also in those grammatical So sound differences, Mm -hmm. but also the discourse. So how do we have a conversation? Right. And then what what do we choose to talk about and why? Right. So I think Mm -hmm. that to me in my work is most important as we're thinking about black identity, the conversations Mm -hmm. that people are having to construct who they are, and negotiate that, particularly in this time of pandemic and protest. How can we empower that? How can we make sure that we're listening to voices that might have been muted in the past or people who have been really particular to gatekeep different experiences in the black identity. This is a time to not just react to violence and to state sanctioned oppression, uh, but to find our voices in a different way.
0: Wow, this is so exciting. So can I ask you about what you said, something about language being used to measure discrimination. I wasn't quite sure what you meant by that. Can you help me understand that a little more?
1: Absolutely. We can, as linguists, measure just every aspect of language at this point. We can use computational models to look at large amounts of text and conversations. I can do acoustic analysis mm-hmm. um, and down to the point of looking at your, the patterns of your vowels, how you pronounce words. Mm-hmm. That can give me so much insight about your background, even where you're from, who you've been talking to. Mm-hmm. and i think so what's so key about that is because what we know as linguists given that we can do that in that kind of analytical way is we are able to look at the distinction between production how i produce language mm-hmm. and perception i see so how and so not just how others perceive my language but how you perceive your language mm-hmm. and so there's this big thing in sociolinguistics is that um you have to really analyze like a, a the individual's own perspective on their language but also start to look at what's going on right from that more empirical point of view and because of the political um lens that we have on language and that that many of us haven't talked about a lot there may be often a difference between mm-hmm. the two and that's natural and normal but it really does give us some cues about people's own self-concept of their language their race their culture their identity. Mm-hmm. And that, that external kind of measure of how we think about those different things in terms of who's listening or who's doing the perceiving, right? right? And so I'll give you just a, a plain example. You might ask somebody, do you really think that you sound black when you talk? Mm-hmm. And that speaker may say, no, I don't really think I sound so black. I think I sound more standardized or, you know, I've been uh-huh. around, I have a multiracial identity or a white identity. But if you play that sample to different people,
2: they yeah. are going
1: to have different notions about how black that person sounds. Right. based on their experiences, right? right? They've been around, what their community is like. And I think that is what's so powerful about the kind of work that I do is that it's not just seated in the individual, mm-hmm. it's not just seated in their perception of themselves, but mm-hmm. this community perception.
0: Amazing. Yeah. Can you? <laughs>
1: this is so fascinating.
0: So when you are crafting an experiment or doing or designing a study, can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Um, and I know that you have done a lot of work um, mentoring young researchers mm-hmm. and encouraging um, emerging scholars to, to pursue rigorous research projects. So I would love to hear, if that's sure. okay, just a little bit about how you design studies of this kind.
1: So there's a couple of different approaches we can take. If we're coming from the psychological models, we use something um, that you know students can readily do. It's kind of easy and not as hard to kind of construct. Um, it's called a matched guys test. Mm-hmm. So basically, you have um, particular words that you might want speakers to to get a measure of their perception of the word, um, and so you have speakers say different words or phrases to different listeners. And mm-hmm. you can see like what the difference is in what they think you said mm-hmm. and what other people said is. Just uh, even on the social, cultural and acoustic level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we will do this um, to kind of get at that perception, production, intersection.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Scholars right now are, are adding that into the mission where you can um, do this in a more, com- like a more um, basically large scale model in using EEG analysis right look at the brain's perception of what's going on um and then also the way that i really have focused on it is to say look we kind of know from linguistics about some of these different perceptions how does this play out in real time Mm -hmm. so my modeling has been much more about thinking about these um kind of perceptual models in practice what are the implications of this in classrooms Mm -hmm. for educators what do they think about these issues Mm
2: -hmm. how do they
1: integrate this into their pedagogy and i think about this from all the way from preschool modeling um, on up now to our work in higher education. Mm-hmm. So you can really have a more, um, you know, empirical, experimental, psychological approach to this, but you can also have a more education modeling in terms of, of interviewing, surveys, right. observation about how this plays out um, in daily situations.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Uh, I'm just thinking about it's it's so very different from how, I have been taught to think about voice in in performance training. You know, I I really feel like this is not at all included in the way voice and speech training is done for actors. So uh, I'm just excited to hear about this.
1: I've been working on that this summer so much. And I've just been fascinated by that because Mm -hmm. it's so relevant to thinking about structural discrimination within music. I'm talking about vocal performance. And I'm talking about acting, musical theater, mm-hmm. and you know things that we do on the side with language attitudes in particular, and mm-hmm. how I think performers need to pay much more attention to language attitudes. What what so is a language I,
0: attitude? What is that? What does that it's mean? It's
1: how we the the ideas and the stereotypes,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and these can be positive, negative, or neutral yeah. that we have about particular voices. Okay. Which voices, so this can be individual, which right. voices do we think are beautiful? Who do we mm-hmm. think is a good singer? Who do we think is, has a good, strong acting voice? Mm-hmm. And then also they can be communal. So how do I convey
2: mm-hmm.
1: cultural um, imagery, and which also can border on the stereotypical all the way to the authentic by, right. you, by manipulating my voice, thinking about dialect coaches and vocal performance in terms of how you pronounce the words to either um, connect to a particular audience or to convey a cultural or social condition. So this mm-hmm. really has implications, not just for thinking about like stereotypes within a language, mm-hmm. but making choices. So like if you're are, are you working with performers and they're singing in German, like, mm-hmm. which variety of German are you using and why? Right? <laughs> right? right. What have, what, how are these different linguistic ideologies and performance, who made them canonical? Who made that right? Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. And
1: I think that's where it's really important for people to think about how artists and and performers and musicians have a role to play in dismantling structural oppression through those yep. type of artistic choices
0: yes <laughs> yes you know the thing the thing that i encounter a lot of um and even from black voice professors prof- you know voice professors of color it's and and practitioners singers uh black singers sometimes use this language around um, accessing a natural voice. And it drives me mm-hmm. up the wall. It drives me up the wall. I'm really, I really don't um, concede to a natural voice or or I don't concede that it's uh, as as readily available or, uh, you know, essentialized or that the voice can be reduced to finding one's natural or authentic or true voice or, you know, in a way that it is Really, kind of mythologized in voice training, uh, both both in in acting training and in musical training. And there are some scholars who are uh, critiquing that. There's a really interesting book by uh, an ethnomusicologist, Catherine Mizell, called "Multivocality" that just came out. So it's not as though everybody subscribes to this, but it is so pervasive. It's really, it's really. Uh, deep in the in the kind of culture and the, and the sort of traditions and the legacies of voice training for performers. Oh, my God, my phone is on. Amazing. So great, Masi. So let's carry on. Um, I know that, uh, and, as, and as you've been mapping for us, your research addresses the way that speakers may shift their language strategies. I don't even know if that's a thing. Is it, is it fair to say language strategy?
1: Well, I think that's important to kind of think about. So we do... <laughs> this in terms of these different angles, right? So we have times when we are, um, we're always speaking. And I think, you know, it really depends on like your culture and how you're structured. So one of the things I argue is that black people have to have a lot more linguistic strategies, given the history of the world and the conditions that we live in. Yes. We're far more making more um, decisions about what we say, how we say it, not just the words we use, but the pronunciation, Mm -hmm. the discourse, the content, um, and that, and then, so you can think about looking at people in these different stylistic situations. So they're doing that with within, within um, with people who they're more comfortable with, family, friends, in community. Mm-hmm. And then when you do that across cultural groups, across situations, in situations where there's more power dynamic at stake. So in education settings, in workplace, medical settings, even legal situations, we kind of have to think about this intersection between um, natural like. What people might think of as more naturalistic speech but kind of dismantle that with the lens of double consciousness at all yeah. times yeah and then think about the degree to which the um the person who's communicating is thinking about their speech and how they're feeling about not just the language but that situation and mm-hmm. think about how many little linguistic decisions are going on right you know in in the person's brain at that moment. It's, it's a dynamic thing. Um, right. And I think performance is huge in this, right? So times that people think that they're speaking and times that they think they're performing and how that yes. relates to notions of stylistic variation, what people think of as style switching or code meshing, Mm-hmm. um and how that changes per individual mm-hmm. given what linguistic repertoire right the languages that they speak the language varieties that they have yeah. how that plays into it so someone could say oh i am working really hard in this situation because i don't know these people i think they're judging my language i yeah. want to sound very you know people say quote unquote professional right but to the listener they're like oh that person's voice is not very you know their their language is not very polished or their performance style is not very um uh, you know, kind of fine. Right. But that person could be working hard as hell. Right. So I think that's the part that we really need to think about is that gap or that difference between someone's production and then how that receives. And I'm sure for you, you've heard this over and over, right? If you think about someone in vocal performance, they could be working hard as hell, and you're still just like, mm, not quite
0: there. <laughs> That's funny. I hope I don't quite address it that way. <laughs> I tend, I tend to sort of say, it's funny. I was teaching a vocal performance class this spring, uh, this this winter, and I tend to ask, I tend to ask singers to try and work harder to be even. Uh, reach reach more heights of awareness about the kind of physicalization and how how aware they are of what they're doing to produce that sound because that usually you know i usually say singing is like dancing without a mirror (laughs) you know like we're moving all these parts but we don't like do you know what you're shifting where and can you feel it can you write and then if and then if you know if the singer is more aware of the choices that they're making then they can uh Potentially make different choices, or more intentional choices, or understand that they have a greater range of choice than they might have thought. Um, But yeah, you know, I have a lot of um, compassion for people who are told that they cannot sing, and I actually think that that does great violence. (laughs) So, so I try, I try not to come down on like, it doesn't sound good, you know. I try, try not to, to come at it that way. But, anyways, um, cool,
1: cool, cool. But I think it's important to think about that, right, that difference in that moment mm. versus who we are culturally and individually selecting to be, like, actual professional performers or, you know, how that relates to even okay. the selection process. Yeah. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about that too. Um,
0: okay. I'm not sure I totally understand that.
1: In it. terms of, like, um, you know, if we think about individual intersections, right, You you encounter a particular person where you're trying to support whether they be a student or you know a family member or sure and I I think that's important and I'm saying it's also important to reflect on this as we make decisions about who gets to be singers correct who gets access to that
0: professionalization or that professional exactly absolutely absolutely Mm -hmm. right it's all very well and good to be compassionate if you hire somebody else (laughs) right exactly (laughs) Right. No, I definitely hear you on that. I want to talk a little bit about um, differently conceived ideas of blackness. We were speaking um, last week and... um, as you've also articulated for us today, the stakes are very high for black people for engaging with language with great finesse. But that is not to say, as you're helping us to understand the finer points here, that's not to say that all black people relate to language in exactly the same ways. So can you share a bit about your thoughts as a linguist um, on, on differently conceived ideas and experiences of blackness and why it's important to engage these differences and not think about a kind of monolithic understanding of blackness
1: i think it's really important because um as our research is showing black people tie language really closely to their identity just as most people do but we have a heightened sense of awareness of the black voice spoken performed sung acted um, in social media in a modern, not just US society, but in global society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so black people at all times, are having to negotiate being proud of this very uh, vocal, verbal tradition. But also thinking about um, how their language, the linguistic practices are being appropriated by other groups,
2: mm-hmm. and what that
1: even means kind of in terms of um, both the commercialization of blackness, mm-hmm. the internalization of blackness. But at the same time, who's listening or learning with a group and who's kind of laughing or using it as entertainment right mm-hmm. so we have to, the way i think about this is the legacy of the power of the black voice um to soothe to entertain to empower yeah but at the same time the legacy of minstrelsy um and what that does mm-hmm. both for individual black people but then as the black um basically the consumption of blackness mm-hmm. and expression. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to engage with people based on their own consciousness of the cultural and societal kind of history of the kind of value of Blackness and how that's like, I don't mean that in like a general sense. I mean, the actual um, aesthetic and cultural narratives that have occurred Mm -hmm. um, and how they are making choices about the relationship between their linguistic expression mm-hmm. and their identity, especially as a Black person. right? And it's really important to think about this in terms of, um, I, I really think about this in the US in terms of pre-segregation models, mm-hmm. when many more Black people lived in segregated spaces,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right, and so this was a, um, a easier way, not, not through any choice of their own, but an easier way to kind of think about the notion of Black community and Black solidarity, right, in these places. Mm-hmm. And then people who chose to participate in Black culture or not, and how they are able to manipulate their voices,
2: mm-hmm. especially
1: before segregation ended. And what's so interesting to kind of thinking about people our age in our 40s, especially the first Black people who may have um, mm-hmm. in larger numbers.
0: Thanks
1: for everyone how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> we were okay. some of the first Black <laughs> Americans, right, to live in these negotiated border spaces. <laughs> So yeah. Not living in all black communities, yeah. and having access to you know majority white um, educational and professional experiences, uh-huh. and a lot of that negotiation happens uh, not necessarily with an academic or cultural or media um, narrative about our language. We just got bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. And watching my students now, who have much more access to information about language identity and blackness. Um, online, right? Mm-hmm. Dating us again. I remember the first time I saw the internet. Like, mm-hmm. how that, how their information, how their connection, how their sense of Blackness has changed in this modern era is huge. And I think mm-hmm. it's so important to engage with students who feel like they're not quite sure how to make choices, right? We think about these things. Many scholars, yeah. because of the lack of Black scholars in the academy, mm-hmm. have studied blackness from a descriptive model, which is great, right? So I see black people, I describe their practices. I describe what they do, how they do it. But Mm -hmm. what our work is actually trying to do is encourage black scholars to be prescriptive, not Mm -hmm. in a negative way, but there are students who are hungry to learn, like, what does black culture really mean? How are you living your life in a lived experience model? And that's so important to think about that interplay um, in the academy right now. And why it's so important to engage these differences is to empower variety, is to say, look, when I'm talking about my experience, I want you to think about two or three other people who identify as Black in some form or fashion, Mm
2: -hmm. but who have
1: very different language patterns, who have very different cultural patterns. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for us to be able to both individually and collectively um, expand our academic notions of the Black diaspora? And I think Mm -hmm. that's just so exciting. Um, we were so fortunate to be able to do that as undergraduates at Harvard, where you had people of the black diaspora coming from all over the world. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm,
1: um, mm-hmm. but I think about many black students, um, attend regional universities, historically black universities,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, where that dynamic is rich. It's just different. And so we need right. to be learning about this in different ways. Right. Yeah. So my projects always involve students from different types of universities with different lived black experiences. Uh, both from the united states and all over the world so i think that's what's so important about having our moment right now is that we have some of the experience um, and knowledge and now we need to put this work into action Mm i really advocate for large discussions about um, how the full manifestation of our black identity will kind of inform some of the social political and economic choices um, that we, we're going to be able to make in the future so that we don't have to mute parts of our identity for academic, educational, or societal gain. Like we mm-hmm. can be our full selves in the world. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. That's really inspiring and it feels so hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's on my mind some of these things that you're talking about in terms of, well, how do we uh, enact and, and actively take up some of these things that we feel are important, and not just, as you say, describe, and not just react to the forces that we see acting on our lives to constrain, uh, to constrain blackness, or 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 not just constrain to to suppress um, what might uh, come out <laughs> as as sounds or expressions of blackness that threaten the institution as it exists. And and it feels yeah. like. I feel like I have to both operate within the system as it exists because concrete benefits accrue to people that are able to do that with finesse. And yet at the same time, I have to advocate for the unmaking of the system. And so it's a—I feel like I have to operate on multiple levels simultaneously, which is exhausting, um, but seems to me the only way forward. I don't know. Does that seem... Reasonable to you So, know, my
1: biggest thing is that as we as Black scholars, but as all scholars who are working on anti racist models move forward, we need to bring across discipline areas and focuses a greater um, focus, I would say, and I have an article that's coming out about this in December, hmm. a greater focus on the economics and logic of all of this. Right? Yeah. And again, we were a great experiment generation, but the data is unsure about yeah. whether it works or not. So, yeah. are we really getting gain or are we getting crumbs? right? Who's okay. this really benefiting okay. and why and how? I think we didn't take classes on it, right? That's just the way I say yeah. it really blatantly for most of us, even if we are people like you and me who are still steeped in, you know, teaching and learning about the Black experience in our in our work, our professional mm-hmm. work, still didn't get that part of it. And the reason is I'm saying it's like, don't feel bad that we didn't get that part yet. It wasn't written yet.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> like no one
1: had the answer to know. But I think in this moment, we need to take a pause and make sure that those rhetorics that we inherited about what we needed to do yeah. to be successful, yeah. are yeah. they true based on data? Because okay. what we got was a rhetoric of hope, and hope is important, but hope has to be triangulated, is what I'm saying.
0: Yes. Oh, I so appreciate this from you. This is so useful for me today. You I don't wanna, say it? <laughs> yes. I totally see what you're saying. And I and I have been intuiting that something is not quite right about my mm-hmm. <laughs> about my approach, but I haven't known how. And I also want to thank you um, for calling my attention on another podcast that you sent me to listen to, you've been you've been on the podcast circuit, yeah. so thank you, <laughs> thank you for joining uh, for joining us on, on this one. But the article by Ebony McGee and Lasana Kazembe called "Entertainers or Education Researchers: The Challenges Associated with Presenting While Black," because this article, again, I did not study this, I wasn't educated to think about these things, but the lucid writing that these scholars um, offer up in, in in mapping the ways that black scholars um, giving academic presentations are read as entertainers and are expected to entertain uh, often predominantly do. white audiences and um, and often that we are expected to modulate our uh, our voices our speech patterns our appearance uh, in order to fit that perception this has really uh, really given me a lot of pause so i want (laughs) to thank you also for for citing that research
1: i think that's what is going to be so exciting about this moment intellectually is that we're going to have some space and place to have these broader bolder discussions about what we see as a model going forward and how many people especially in a black diasporic model will be able to be included in it and i think about that linguistically so if Mm -hmm. i think about the model right now for success in both, you know, academic positions, but also just in general, there is a lot of linguistic gatekeeping that is occurring. Mm -hmm. So how do we judge people based on their um, verbal performance? How do we uh, judge people based on their written performance? And who gets left out of that almost without even a thought? And it's been exciting to watch the dismantling in many places of things like the SAP and the GRE, who just did Mm -hmm. that work without question. (laughs) And so now the next generation of this and I'm working on this right now for the National um, Council of Teachers of English has a conference um, on college composition and communication.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And my research team and I are designing a guide to have a better way of giving feedback to black students in their written work.
2: Mm -hmm. And our
1: argument is that every professor who's trying to work on anti-racist approaches to have a guide to really help them think about those of us who were taught formally to teach writing or to teach. Yeah. Students, and then those of us who were just faculty who kind of picked it up along the way, yeah. really disrupt like what we're doing and thinking about, was there any notion of thinking about um, racial justice in the wow. way that we were taught to give feedback to students?
3: Wow. So
1: really grateful to them for the grant. Those materials will be on their website. Um, I have students who are presenting on this. It's active work to say, look, we right now, have to really question anything that we feel like we just kind of inherited as a
0: practice mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Charity <laughs> Hudley. This is amazing. I think we've kind of gone through all of the questions on my list. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to add um, as we get ready to close.
1: Uh, I just think, you know, I would to talk a little bit about this. I'm so glad to talk to you about this and kind of bridge this, Space between um, African American and Black linguistics and Black performance. And I just mm-hmm. really want to keep this conversation mm-hmm. going, um, just mm-hmm. in terms of how we think about um, the portrayals of Blackness in different entertainment and performance spaces. Yes. And I think, you know, if there's a lot of work there to bring in varied experiences um, through linguistic and music performance and the way that we do it and have cross conversations mm-hmm. um, about um our own kind of humanistic manifestation of art and performance and then also thinking about really critically thinking about the audiences that we are trying to reach i think that's the big one um are we successful if we know that most of our audience most of our students are not black like what are we doing is it similar or dissimilar to minstrelsy and this is a tough question for people but i think one that we have to reckon with in this moment
0: no, thank you for bringing this up. I will say, so I uh, sit primarily in a the theater department, although I also have an yeah. appointment in performance studies at Northwestern. And there is, and I, and I work in a practical, I, I teach some practical courses in musical theater performance, as well as uh, I also work in the PhD in, in theater and drama as well. But um, there is a lot of uh, reckoning going on right now with the curriculum for how actors are educated mm-hmm. <laughs> in our program and which, you uh, kinds of works are considered part of the canon and how can the work of playwrights like August Wilson and in the musical theater scene George C Wolfe among others Kirsten Childs is one of my favorite um uh artists as a as a black woman author of musicals um but how can we consider and 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 give more space and 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 priority to some of these artists and the kinds of works and ways of performing that they invite uh, in order to also invite more black performers into our programs and to do well by those who are there. So, so all of the things that you're talking about in terms of how we assess language in the classroom, as well as how we consider it um, uh, at, as performance and uh, for its entertainment value, these things intersect in such multiple and rich ways uh, in thinking about the theater classroom right now. So I really appreciate your your raising that and and bringing it up again. I do not think that these are conversations soon to be soon to be resolved, <laughs> but in a way that's exciting because that means the potential for for change is greater.
1: And I just you know I appreciate you kind of giving me this opportunity and really, I've been working, focusing on, you know, making sure that our study of language and culture keeps this humanistic focus. Mm-hmm. And my students have been working on projects and, and presenting on ideas of thinking about the intersection of language in rap battles and, mm-hmm. you know, in the ways that we present ourselves. And I think, you know, performance for black people is a high value. And we want to keep that thinking about that in the ways that we can use those rhetorical styles, those performance styles push this moment along in, mm-hmm. in history, but also to keep it going, right? The power of the singular Black voice, but the collective Black voice, we have seen in the history of the world has been able to move mountains. It causes people to be less afraid. It causes people to be more bold. And I think mm. those conversations between you all who are doing performance studies and theater and linguists, we need to make a strategy to keep that work going. <laughs>
0: Yay! I'm ready to follow you anywhere. I really,
1: <laughs> truly am. I
0: cannot thank you enough for talking with me today. It is such a joy. Thank you
1: so much. This has been fun. Oh my gosh, you got me thinking about so much. <laughs> Retta Jones. I sing this life in testimony to tempo rubato, to time stolen body by body by body by body from one passage to another. I sing tremolo to the Opus of Loss. I sing this story staccato and stretto, a fugue of blackface and blued up arias.
0: I'm so delighted to welcome Linda Gates, who is joining me vocally as our guest vocal practitioner for this episode. Linda Gates is Senior Lecturer and the Head of Voice in the Department of Theater at Northwestern University. She trained in Acting, Voice, and Speech at Carnegie Mellon University, San Francisco State University, and New York University. She has taught Voice and Speech at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, Columbia, Yale, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Central School of Speech and Drama in England, Circle in the Square Theater School, and Hochschule for Musik und Theater in Hamburg, Germany. She has worked extensively as a voice and dialect coach, both on and off Broadway in Chicago, regional theater, opera, and in film. And her credits include the Metropolitan Opera, where she coached Placido Domingo in the world premiere of The First Emperor, Julie Taymor's English language production of The Magic Flute. Linda has conducted vocal workshops for the Royal Shakespeare Company, Vasta, Atha, and for the Pan-European Voice Conferences in Germany, the Netherlands, and Sweden. She is founding member of the Prague Shakespeare Company, where she directs, performs, and teaches every summer. She has written two books, Voice for Performance from Applause in 2000, and Speaking in Shakespeare's Voice, a Guide for American Actors from Northwestern University Press in 2019. Linda, thank you so much for joining me. It's
3: such a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Yay, we were chatting a little bit uh, in advance about how we are colleagues, but we haven't really had a chance to sit down and talk, and it's so exciting to learn more about your work uh, with voice and your wealth of expertise in this area.
3: Well, thank you. It's so interesting to work with other teachers because so many separate their singing voice and their speaking voice, mm-hmm. And whereas I'm also a singer as well as an actor. And Amazing. I focus... On speaking voice,
0: uh huh, and I have to say, your singing expertise is so interesting. We were chatting a bit about how you had a background as a folk singer in New York and San Francisco, and I know, I think, I think you said you still have a guitar, so I'm I'm hoping that at some point you'll pick it up again, <laughs> and continue with that. But you had this folk singing experience.
3: Yes, one of the great passions of mine is, in terms of text, is poetic text. One of the mm. things that's so fascinating about folk music is that it's come down through generations mm-hmm. and then in, in that the poetry or the light is sort of refined until it's just mm-hmm. very simple and very direct. It's yeah. A challenge and fun to work on.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I love the text. I love the text of, of a lot of country songs as well, which have um, a real tie to to folk roots in a lot of cases anyways. Okay, well, I I don't want (laughs) to wander too far afield, but actually maybe, can I ask you before we jump into the exercise, which I'm excited about, um, would you maybe just tell a little bit about um, how you think about the voice in broad terms? I know that's a big question, but maybe how your training um, has positioned you to teach about uh, speech in the way that you do now.
3: Well, I think that my first training when I was an, as an actress, when I was at Carnegie, Mm -hmm. uh, I had not ever trained the speaking voice. It Mm -hmm. never occurred to me. Um, And the challenge was sort of being able to speak a text without first losing your voice, Mm -hmm. and then being able to speak a text in which you had to speak and reach out to an audience. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very fortunate in that I had uh, really marvelous teachers. There was a woman called Edith Skinner mm-hmm. and she focused almost exclusively on speech. She talked about voice, but she didn't really teach. She gave us a book called The Speaking Voice to Read mm-hmm. and we read it, but it's trying to like learning about the voice by reading about it.
2: Right. And
3: I, I mean, I remember thinking, I don't know how to breathe. And that yeah. was That was, to me, such a challenge. Mm. And then I met a young man in this music school who was a singer, and he gave lessons, and so I had some lessons from him. Mm -hmm. And I finally learned to breathe, and I did a lot of exercises on the piano. And then Mm -hmm. the next year, uh, my teacher, Edith Skinner's, her own teacher came out of retirement, and she really focused on voice. So Mm -hmm. suddenly we were talking about voice placement and so forth mm-hmm. but again nobody used they neither of them used the piano mm-hmm. and my singing teacher used the piano and I played the piano as a child I had music lessons and I mm-hmm. read music and I you know I can play the piano uh, but that was very separated okay and when I went to teach uh, when I left Carnegie and then I went to New York and I when I was asked to teach at NYU I worked with Kristen Linklater. I was mm-hmm. assistant to Nora Dunphy. So oh. the, the, the plan was that the young speech teachers would work with Kristen on voice, mm-hmm. and then her students would work with Nora on speech. So I worked with Kristen for over a year, and she always used the piano. Okay. And I thought,
0: oh. What did she use the piano for?
3: She Scales.
0: Okay, okay.
3: So, so she would sit down and she would work. We would st- sort of start lying on the floor, but she, mm-hmm. she began with, we would work on scales, combining mm. sounds with voice, but it was also to pitch. Yeah. So she didn't really pay very much attention to sounds. And I think she sort of had a prejudice against speech. And I think it was because she was mm-hmm. from Scotland Mm -hmm. And she had a great anti, something called received pronunciation, which is British, you know, BBC English. Yeah. Although she spoke it very well. (laughs) She spoke it. (laughs) And um, so that's sort of where I started. And I found that even though a lot of students think they can't sing, Mm -hmm. or they'll tell you they can't sing, or they'll tell you they can't match pitch, Mm -hmm. I always use the piano. Because when we start, they're in a classroom, and everybody's all doing it together.
0: Mm-hmm. So
3: nobody's called like, you can't do this. And by the end of the class, they they're all on pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and they're always surprised that they are.
0: it's so amazing how you know sometimes taking the pressure off a little bit of feeling like you're on the spot can also help amazing so I know I want to make sure I remember to ask you about the exercise but I know that you have this interest in sort of the line between the speaking and the singing voice and um, you mentioned to me I think when we were corresponding that sometimes you have singers come into your classes um, who seem a little bit at a loss as to how to connect their singing voice to their speaking voice. Is is that, did I understand that correctly? Yes, I mean, it.
3: Um, you've um, you probably heard of the opera singer, Bryn Terfel, a great mm-hmm. bass band, uh, who's Welsh, and he, I was coaching Sweeney Todd at the Lyric Opera. Oh, wow. And, I had, and he was playing Sweeney Todd, and he was ne- trying to negotiate with, uh, to have his lines reduced. <laughs>
0: Oh really? His spoken lines.
3: Wow. He just felt it was just too difficult, and he was petrified. Huh? And Stephen Sondheim came and he said, "No, you have to." I'm sure. I was going to say,
0: I don't think Mr. Sondheim would accept that.
3: So so we sat down together, and I said, and we were talking, and then he did this long speech, and they did the entire speech on one breath.
0: Uh huh.
3: Uh (laughs) I said, no. I said the punctuation is actually—it's not not necessarily there is a breath, but when you have to the a a period, you have to take a breath. He said that's allowed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is a great story. So I said,
3: you know that as you can breathe, but when you're in, when you're going up. You can catch a breath, it's much quicker than if you go down, and that the thought is the breath. And so we went through it once, and yeah. he suddenly got it. And he was, yeah. he was an amazing, sweet talk.
0: Oh, wow. So, can I ask you now to uh, share a brief exercise?
3: Well, this is an exercise I always I say to my students, I have no recollection of when I learned it. Mm-hmm. and uh you know because i've worked with so many different teachers so you pick up a little here and there mm-hmm. and this is an exercise i call the frog and the <laughs> and okay. it, is, it is the safest easiest exercise to do uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> i if well, i know we're on a podcast but if you start out is you puff your cheeks out and you're sort of creating this sound with your let your, your cheeks stay out, but you feel the pressure mm. of the breath behind the ribs.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: One of the things I emphasize with breathing, and uh, there's a wonderful voice teacher I work with at Yale, Marjorie Phillips, and she used to say ribs, darling, ribs. Yeah. And, and support, you know, those two floating ribs. So it's just sipping in and feeling the pressure in the ribs and the cheeks, just like your Puffing out, but you don't, you keep the breath equalized. I'm going to do it with the piano. Okay. If you only have one exercise to do and you can't hurt your voice uh-huh. because you equalize the pressure uh-huh. from, the, from the ribs and the cheeks. So you're keeping your cheeks puffed out and you feel the vibrations on your lips. down were you able to try that?
0: yes I I sang along with you I love it you know it makes me really feel you know what I what I was thinking as I was doing it and it's always an adventure to to do this without seeing somebody so I I have to trust that I was doing it right <laughs> but um I really felt the space in my mouth like in, in my not in my throat but in my mouth by puffing out the cheeks I, I felt the pressure I could feel the pressure in my mouth and the pressure in the against the ribs and so it was kind of like it did kind of feel like you know thinking about a frog the way the frog's chest puffs out and the way a frog's cheeks might puff out and that i really was ballooning yes. in those two places cool well i feel like i invited you in and now i'm talking your ear off but let me just ask you one more question and we'll, and we'll wrap up um is there anything that you want to say you know this podcast started because uh using our voices right now during covid 19 is such a different experience you know we have to talk to people through masks, um, using our voices in different ways. That way, there's just different kinds of distance, you know, working through through the Zoom and the the computer, or recording things. So it's just a different experience using voice and teaching voice right now. Is there anything you're noticing in particular about how you're using or teaching voice that's specific to right now? Well, I think
3: something I observed was that. Mask having the face masked Mm -hmm. is a real challenge because you have to, the articulation has to be stronger. I always say how much audiences re they need Mm. to see your face when you're speaking. Mm
0: -hmm. So, if your
3: head, if you're turned upstage, it's much harder for audiences to hear
0: Mm.
3: because they're actually not seeing. Yeah, so I would say what I'm just seeing is that. It, it takes a more breath and articulation, yeah, because you the mask is actually masking the face, and so they can't read your lips.
0: Yeah, and even you know people in the deaf community. I, I you know I think like I have a friend who posted online something about how when people started wearing masks, it just seemed to her like the whole world had gone, the whole world had gone quiet because she couldn't read anyone's lips. So yeah, but for for hearing people as well. We Like you're saying, we do rely on on what we see. Um, I appreciate your saying that. I hadn't thought about it in so many words that it is about articulation that we have to really focus on when we're wearing the masks. Yeah.
3: Yes, I've just noticed that when we're no longer looking at each other, we're just podcasting. Yeah. It requires articulation.
0: Oh, yes.
3: And it's interesting that radio used to be course i remember i'm always remembered when i was a child i would like to come home after school and listen to the lone ranger yeah with a shadow there were all this radio drama and so many of the actors this, and they they're gone now but to, had this great skill in performing just with the voice and we're yeah. not used to that yeah and yeah so you know so maybe that's something we we begin podcasting and do the well, way we it's a challenge to actually shape the sounds and get the sounds forward so that we can be heard just with these microphones that just pick up our voice.
0: Yeah, oh, that's, I love that. Thank you for mentioning that. I have to say, I have been thinking for a while about podcast musicals or audio musicals, which some artists are now doing, to think about what kind of performance those shows, audio shows require, what kind of vocal performance is required that's different in terms of the articulation. That is such a great thing for me to keep thinking about. Thank you.
3: It's one of those fascinating things in which things that you think are completely gone come back again. Because podcasting right. is simply voice performing in a different guise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Linda, I can't thank you enough. This has been such a pleasure. I just thank you so much for chatting with me and and sharing your expertise.
3: Well, thank you for having me. And I think it's such a wonderful thing that we have said, you know, that we can keep these conversations going.
0: That's it. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll stay safe, stay strong, and return for future episodes when I plan to host theater professors Brian Herrera and Caitlin Wood, as well as voice teacher Diane Robinson of the Chicago Voice Center. Until then.